Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. It's time for the Life Writing Podcast with your hosts, authors and screenwriters Stephen Barnes and Tanana Reeve Dew. All about creating the project of your dreams while living a balanced artist life. Be the hero or heroine of your own story. Sponsored by LifeWritingPremium.com. Get ready to write for your life. Welcome to the Life Writing Podcast, where married authors and screenwriters, Stephen Barnes and Tananarive do talk about writing during stressful times, breaking into Hollywood, and balancing life. Every week, we'll share more tips on how to build a better life while you create your dream project. Even if it's only at the rate of one sentence a day, life writing is the application of the tools of writing to life and the tools of life to your writing. Okay, so this is exciting. I, I, I see myself in the videos. I'm always jumping up and down when I'm on this podcast. So I'm going to try to keep it together. It's just, it's just natural. That's just the way you are. You wake up sort of bouncing up and down. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm excited about every podcast, but I'm really, really excited about this one. We have an amazing guest that we'll bring in a little bit later. Rodney Barnes. I cannot wait. In the house. Is in, in the, the house. house. Himself. himself. So, and, and we'll tell you all about him. In a, My baby wow. brother. Even if you don't know him, you know him. So we like to start this out by talking about what's going on in our lives and the way we're applying some of these principles to the actual process. So the last week, things have been getting kind of interesting. Since it's to do with one of your projects primarily, why don't you talk about it, too? I have a, a book that has been a reader favorite. And it has been in and out of film development. This is the first time we're getting queries about TV. And they're very, I don't want to say aggressive queries, but they're very, very interested queries. We have two offers on the table to put it into development, maybe a third coming uh, after this week. And that's just ironic, as I mentioned in previous podcasts, because we have put a lot of time and energy into pitching other projects with production companies and decks and you know, sizzle reels, and it's the one you're not pitching that is eliciting all of the excitement. That's just weird. And one of the things that's interesting is the difference between when, when you're pitching something and you're trying to talk people into being interested in what you're doing, and when a studio is already interested and they call you saying, let us make your project, it's being the bell of the ball at that point. You know, it's, it's, it's flipping the script. And it can be a little bit disorienting because they can be so nice and so sweet, so persuasive, and they are just absolutely your friends I when they're trying to get you to do something. Especially when they've turned you down for stuff in the past. It's true. <laughs> you know, so, you know, trying to, trying to look at this situation, you know, asking ourselves, well, we've already got two deals on the table, either one of which we would have been delighted with a year ago. We would have jumped for, you know, those deals. Don't tell our reps we said that. Oh, I, I, I won't. <laughs> But, you know, I think that, that to the degree that you don't tell your reps that you said that, I think that's the degree to which you're talking about the kid part of you that, that is doing the, you know, the you know, Mickey Rooney, you know, Judy Garland, saying, let's put on a show. And the adult part that has to pay the bills. 
Right. Those are two different parts of your personality. And I'm really glad to have, you know, a lawyer and a manager and an agent, an agency who will sort through these things, try to figure out what your value is in the market. And then they're playing poker with the other people. You know, they don't know what cards you're holding. They don't know when, you know, what you're really going to walk away from. So that game, I think, is is not fun for the artist in general. Mm. It's stressful, even if you like the number of zeros on the contract. So I'm, it's to watch that and to try to keep your perspective, try to keep your head on straight is a challenge. It is. But it, I have to say this. It's a fun challenge. It's a very it, fun challenge. It it's a very fun challenge. challenge. It beats the challenge of waiting a year and a half to get a contract signed for something you did set up because the director is busy shooting a movie in West Africa somewhere uh, or on an Oscar run up. So never available. I mean, literally you have the studio saying, okay, we'll do it. And you're like, we need a signature. So I'll take it over. The well, shall we, as long as you brought that up, we might as well tell the most humiliating part of that story. Oh, really? yeah, I mean, you might as well. I mean, I you opened you. that door. I'm going to walk through it. So for over a year. A year and a half. Yeah, we're trying to get this person. And we needed the money. Let me add we that. Need, yes, absolutely. We needed the money. We tried we to get this person's name on the contract. We would see this person's name floating across Twitter. They would tweet that they were, you know, building children's schools in some place in Africa oh, wow. or, or, or this or that. And we would get into the Twitter stream and this person... Notice we're being very careful. No, this is AOL, honey. This is way before Twitter. This is like AOL. Okay, was it, it was AOL? And it was Carson. Oh, yeah, I remember the contract. Don't worry, I'll sign it as soon as I get back. Or don't worry. Nothing. Nothing. And then one day came the most humiliating moment because, like I said, we needed the money. Oh, we did, Teddy. We saw that this person was getting a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. And we drove up to Hollywood and we're in the crowd, pushed our way to the front of the line so we could catch this person's yes. eye as they walk. Yeah. Hello. <laughs> we're here. Still here. Yes. Oh, my God. Kind the contract. Kind the contract. So it was just the most humiliating thing imaginable. And then. I kind of, I finally decided, you know, if we don't get this signed within the next month, we're just pulling the project because I just, I can't go through this anymore. We, and I finally had a thought that a couple of years earlier, we'd needed a high powered lawyer to deal with a situation. And we got, we got an, an advice from my, from my agent, I believe it was about a very high powered lawyer. And we'd paid this person for one hour of their time. The retainer, where they had a little bit of money left. Yes, it was. It, it, it cost us more money than we could afford, but he got that done. But we still had about 15 minutes left of the hour that we bought from this high-powered lawyer. So I called him up, and I explained the situation, and he laughed, you know, because apparently he knew this, this, this artist's agent and, or lawyer and so now, he, I, and I also got the feeling that he was enjoying being a little bit of a superhero. You know, nobody else had been able to solve this. He had it worked out within about 48 hours. He called yeah, really. the lawyer. The lawyer called the client. They messaged over to his house a contract. The lawyer, the messenger waited for the, for the artist to sign it. 
We got it back and we got paid. Now, nothing ever came of that project, oh, I except we got paid. It was our, our first chance uh, to write scripts for yeah. a major studio. And we wrote two drafts, you know, which is what we had in our contract. It, it was a great learning experience, which is really the vast majority of my Hollywood experiences have been a great learning experience. Well, this was, it was especially a good learning experience in terms of understanding how important having the right people in terms of your business is. Yeah. And one of the reasons why I love the, our guest today is that he arranged for us to get one of those top level lawyers. And it's been just wonderful having, having really competent people in your corner. True. You know, like I said, the kid part of you just wants to say, let's put on a show. But you need adults in the room to manage the money, to look at the zeros, to make sure you don't get walked over. Now, before we, well, if anything else has been going on in the last week that you wanted to discuss? We'll no, do. I think let's just get. Okay, before we do that, we'd like to say that this show is brought to you by, you know, a, a variety, by our company. The name of our company is Mastery Plus. We have a variety of different products. I mean, when we talk about Afrofuturism, think about. Our class, the, it's our online version of the class that Tanarev teaches at UCLA, AfrofuturismWebinar.com. So we'll talk about the other one at the end of the show. But now let's kind of get into this because I don't want to wait any longer. So Tanarev, why don't you read the bio? You've got a bio. I would love to read the bio. I, that's, this is a great thing for me. We, today's guest is Rodney Barnes, a veteran, award-winning screenwriter and producer. He's established himself as a Hollywood mainstay with his vibrant, emphatic voice and producing expertise, securing him an overall deal with HBO. Yes to that. From Adult Swim's The Boondocks to Hulu's Wu-Tang and American Saga, Barnes has displayed versatility across a variety of genres in the industry's largest and most influential programs. I'm wearing this jersey today because he's the, currently the executive producer for HBO Max's Winning Time, The Rise of the Lakers Dynasty series. And we are loving that, three episodes in. Uh, the second arc of his critically acclaimed graphic novel, Philadelphia, was released in August of 2020. I know, Rodney, you're working on a pilot for that as well. Um, and you've been tapped to pen a creative feature for New Regency with Jordan Vote roberts attached to direct. I hope I'm pronouncing Jordan's name right. And writing a miniseries based on the life of golf great tiger woods you know we just there's so much more i was gonna say i could go on and on but i am gonna skip to the part where we want to talk about the boondocks because barnes was a co-executive producer and writer also on chris rock's tv series everybody hates chris from 2005 to 2009 worked on boondocks so much has been doctoring scripts you don't even know he's been doctoring very funny writes horror writes comedy writes it all Ladies and gentlemen, welcome the great Rodney Barnes. Come on in. <laughs> I need to bring you guys Yeah, you need a hype man. I do. <laughs> That's right. You guys did a great job. <laughs> hey, since, you know, Flavor Flav, you know, just. Uh... <laughs> That's what all his friends call. You know, one of the things yeah, that I wanted to ask you is you've got a great story about how you met Stephen King. Yes. And I'd, I'd love, I'd love to hear that. Cause that was before you became the Rodney Barnes, ah, yeah. but it was one of the transitional moments. This is true. I was working on a movie stigmata and uh, with Gabriel Byrne and Neil Long. And, um, I what saw, were you doing on it? I was a production assistant and I saw that uh, they were doing the movie, the green mile. 
and they were looking for large black men. And I really wanted to meet Stephen King. I've loved Stephen King my entire life, loved his books. And I've always had this thing where I would go outside of my comfort zone and what normal people would do to achieve a thing. So I find out that uh, the transportation coordinator on Stigmata is actually going to become the transportation coordinator on the Green Mile. So I begged this guy, you got to introduce me to Frank Darabont and different people. You got to get me on. Somehow I have to work on this show so I can meet Stephen King. So he said, look, I've got a 1939 paddy wagon. And this wasn't, it took like a month or so of begging to get him to a place of where he would help me. Because he really didn't know. And he said, I've got this 1939 paddy wagon. If you want to get in the back of it, I've got to take it to Darabont's place at Water Brothers. And you can get out and he can see what a large black man in the back of this paddy wagon would look like. Great. Good. I'm in. Good one. So I get in the back of this paddy wagon, but there's no air conditioning or shock absorbers in a 1939 paddy wagon. Oh so by the time I get to Warner Brothers, I look like an inmate. Sweating <laughs> <laughs> and just bad. And it wasn't like, you know, back then I was living in my car. It was a completely different life than the life of now. So I really did. It wasn't the best presentation I could have uh, imagined in meeting Mr. Darabont. I get there. It's Frank Darabont, David Valdez, and our unit uh, line production manager at the time. And boom, the doors open. And I hop out. I scared the hell out of everybody. <laughs> Transport driver's like, no, 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 no. It's like, uh, he's okay. He's with me. He starts explaining really poorly as to why I'm there. And Frank Darabont used to be a production assistant on movies as well. And he appreciated how badly I wanted to be a part of it. So he hired me in that moment to be the stand-in for John Coffey. The role hadn't been cast yet. So it was Sean McBride, Bill Duke, and finally Michael Clark Duncan, who were the three finalists to come in and audition for the role. So I would walk them from the parking lot to stage and, you know, talk a little bit, chat a little bit. And actually the other guys were more polished actors, but Michael sort of embodied the character in a, in a, in a raw way. You know, he sort of looked the part and there was something about his, his rough around the edges acting, you know, not being as polished as the other guys that sort of won him the role. And I was there from the beginning to the end. And I met Stephen King. He was fantastic. Big picture over my fireplace of the two of us. Signed all my books, lived up to my fantasy. Oh, that's wonderful. Am, am I misremembering something, Rodney? Because I remember years ago, I was at a book signing. Essa one. Essa one books. Essa one books. You who yes. came up to me. Yes. Yes. You said Stephen King recommended my novel, My Soul to Keep to You? Yes. Oh, my gosh. That is such yes. a weird coincidence because, of course, I'll never forget that. But here yes. you are. And it's yeah. like, oh, that's Rodney Barnes. And you signed my books. As and well. I signed they said, And so I was, I was in a great period of great authors signing. Wow. And so there you go. Well, what, before you go any further, I wanted to, I want to make sure that people notice some things. Rodney, you were willing to do whatever it took to get where oh, you wanted yeah. to go. Sleep oh, yeah. in your car, ask a guy who barely knows you for a month, you know, stay in the back of this, that, that what, what you did in terms of how did you believe in yourself enough to be willing to go through what a lot of people would consider to be 
you know, degrading things, or I'm not going to do. How could you believe in yourself enough to know that something good was going to come out of all this? Uh, well, I didn't at first. Um, there's another story if you want to hear that. Yes, probably got to this other place. So, um, how I got to um, how I got to LA. So I was going through a divorce. I got married really, really young uh, when I lived in Maryland, and I did not know what I was going to do with my life. I was sort of lost because I had planned on being married for the rest of my life, and I was working at a lumberyard in various jobs. I was a campus cop and just was floating from place to place. And I was talking to a friend after uh, my breakup and I was expressing how badly my life was going. And he said, you know, if you could do anything with your life, what would it be? And I immediately said, I would write movies and TV shows. And he said, just go do that. And I immediately started to make excuses. Like, you know, I don't know anybody in Hollywood is so far away. Uh, everybody in Hollywood must be a genius. I haven't met a genius yet. Um, and just every excuse in the book. So eventually I was sort of forced out of our marital home. And so I moved uh, to D.C., uh, enrolled, re-enrolled in Howard University and School of Communications. And I started to work as a production assistant on movies and TV shows that came into the Maryland, D.C. area because they do a lot of glamour shots in the Capitol building, the White House, different places. So worked on Forrest Gump, Clear and Present Danger, Quiz Show, Pelican Brief, a um, bunch of movies. And eventually I ended up working on a movie, Major Pain, with Damon Wayne. Yes. And about a weekend, he called me into his trailer and I was sure I had said something or done something wrong. And he said, uh, no, 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 you didn't do anything wrong. He just said, I hear something. And he asked me what I wanted to do with my career. I know you don't just want to be a production assistant. Actually, I hadn't thought past being a production assistant, but I immediately said, I want to be a writer. He was like, really? I said, yeah. So for the next two and a half years, I followed him around the country working on his movies, Celtic Pride, uh, Bulletproof, a couple of others. And um, eventually in working on Bulletproof, I had, and I was commuting from Maryland to wherever, like, and I would live in my car through the production and make basically enough money to get back home at the end. We're talking about 120 bucks a day or something like that. And eventually I worked on a movie, um, Bulletproof, with him. I'm actually in that movie for a scene, if you ever, about to rape Adam Sandler in prison. And um, Damon has a heart-to-heart -heart talk. He's like, if you really want to be a writer, you have to move to L.A. And this is before the internet, you know, 97, 98, somewhere around there. And there was an internet, but it wasn't this right. kind of internet. And um, I packed up my stuff. I moved to... Um, I moved to L.A. I lived on the corner of Laurel Canyon and Ventura behind uh, Long's Drugs. It's a CVS now. And um, I began. I began the journey. And then about eight months in, my ex-wife sent my son to come live with me. And so I had to get out of my car. So I started a garbage business to where at the end of shoots, at the end of the day, the caterers and the craft service people need to get rid of their garbage. So they would pay me three bucks a bag to load up my truck at the end of the night and I would find a dumpster. It's illegal. So no, no one's going to come after me that I dump my stuff in. And I would make an extra couple hundred bucks a night and I had enough to get an apartment to move my son in. So when he came in, I had an apartment. And that was sort of uh, the grind for the first two years was survival. 
because I really didn't know a lot of people. I really didn't understand the psychology of Hollywood. I did not see a bridge between survival and becoming a writer. And eventually on the Green Mile, I had an epiphany. There was a moment where I sort of understood that if I was ever going to become a writer, I had to stop focusing primarily on survival and I had to build a skill set that was strong enough to sort of create an opportunity, if that makes sense. Yes. And Damon, eventually we reconnected and he said, I'll give you a job for one day on a movie, on the TV show, My Wife and Kids. And I just kept coming back, even though this was before 9-11. So security wasn't very tight on the ABC lot. And every day I just kept coming back for free. And the showrunner was Don Rio. And I quickly learned that the star is the star, but the showrunner is the guy that gives you a job as a writer. And I would sit behind him on the couch and I would just kind of whisper little pitches. And one day he was like, just come sit at the table. And so I'm sitting at the writer's table with all of these geniuses. And I learned that they were just people who worked really, really hard at what they did, that everybody had the same fears and imposter syndrome and all this other stuff. And that was sort of the start of my career. They hired me as a staff writer next year and um, things kind of went a pretty straight line from there. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Great. The fact is that most people have no idea the price that people pay to get into the game, as well as the price that it pays to stay in the game, and the price that you pay to raise the level of your game. So uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about your end point the most recent, not in point, but, but one of your recent fantastic successes. And then I'd like to go back and talk about the building process, the uh, yeah. sustaining process. So in winning time. It really, it feels like you are doing better than ever right now in terms of your work, your prominence, you're out there. You're actually in the series. You play a role. As a I do. I'm Maurice, the head of forum security. Yes. Yeah, we were watching last night, and even though Steve had told me you were in it, I was just watching. I didn't even notice that it was you because I was so absorbed in the story. But everybody seems to love this. By the way, congratulations on it. It must be doing great for uh, for HBO for you. I have to admit, one of my college friends who lived in my dorm, Communication Residential College, Northwest University, Andy Hirsch, mm-hmm. is in the series as David uh, Stern. So. Uh-huh. Yes, I know, right? Oh, oh, so, I hope you said hello. Please do. Not only was he your friend, but he was in literally the first video adaptation that one of our classmates made. He was the lead in, in my first video adaptation in college. But in any case, that's not what makes this show so exciting. I was just wondering, how is it doing for you? How did it come about? It seems like a story that was right to be told. I mean, the, what in the world? It's, what, it's such a great story. 
Well, how I became involved, Max Borenstein, who's our showrunner, he and I have been writing together for about a decade. And he hired me on vinyl. We sort of had a meeting. I call it our meet cute, where I was supposed to have like a 15-minute meeting with him. He and Scott Burns were hiring writers for vinyl um, on HBO. And this was roughly almost 10 years ago. And um, the meeting lasted four and a half hours. And we sort of walked away. I knew I had the job. I knew nobody's going to talk to me that long for nothing. But we sort of knew we had a thing. And we complement each other as, as writers really, really well. And so um, we wrote a feature uh, after Vinyl was canceled, uh, Arc of Justice, that got on the blacklist and did a couple of other things. And while I was working on Wu-Tang in Staten Island, he was working on a movie worth um, in New York. And he called me and he said, you know, I got this offer to do um, uh, this Lakers thing. And uh, would you like to come on and sort of partner with me and go on this adventure with me? I said, sure. And at the time, it was like nine, nine below zero in Staten Island. We were in Battery Park. It was like four in the morning. And I cannot take cold anymore. So the thought of working in L.A. and not having to be in the cold anymore was like, even it could have been about anything as long as it was in L.A. and I was working with Max. And so we came on and um, started to write. He had already done a draft of the pilot and I sort of did a rewrite on it. We went back and forth and back and forth until we got to a place where uh, HBO and Adam McKay and all the other folks involved were happy with it. And then we started to assemble the cast. Um, and Francine Maisler is an incredible casting director who sort of found the unknowns that played the Lakers and the knowns that played the management and the ownership and um, coaches. And so it was just really a, uh, a process that came together methodically and then COVID hit. And so right after we had finished shooting the pilot, uh, we had a year and a half to continue to work on, fortunately, because a lot of people lost their jobs during that period. A lot of shows shut down. But we had an opportunity to really get into the script writing process and write the whole season and really go over it and over it and over it. And I think the strength of the show is the foundation of the writing and our ability to sort of um, really get the best out of the scripts and then the actors and directors who interpret those words. Um, Sort of just really been a blessing. Uh, amazing. Great show. It really, it really is. And before we talk about the building process, I know that I frankly consider your, your turnaround here, what's happening in your career to be a small miracle mm. because yeah, you've had some, some issues that you're not shy about talking about. No. And so you, when I first met you, you were in a, you were not at your peak. How long ago? <laughs> to say the least. Uh, how, long, how long ago did you? I can tee up. Let me tee up the whole thing so that sure. give context before Steve uh, comes in. Um, so I started working on my wife and kids around 2000, 2001. And I had a pretty straight shot of work, like um, from there to about 2011. Things were going pretty consistent. I had a. Uh, my wife and kids, and then I did Everybody Hates Chris, and then I was doing the Boondocks on top of that, and then I was rewriting movies for the Weinsteins. And um, life was pretty good, certainly better than I had ever imagined it would be in a guy who was a security guard and worked at Walmart and all these other things. This is fantastic. 
but I did not develop um, a career. I was working. I was um, a gun for hire. You could hire me and I would um, sit in a chair. And if you needed a funny guy, I would try to be funny. If you needed a guy to um, uh, be dramatic or whatever the show required, I would try to be that thing. But I was crippled by insecurity and imposter syndrome and a lot of things that uh, a lot of writers carry. And I always had this, this fleeting fantasy in the back of my mind that if I could make it to Hollywood and make a lot of money, that somehow I could sort of escape the things about myself that I didn't like. And I made it to Hollywood, made some money, created this persona that I thought of would sort of uh, hide me, you know, a mask of sorts. And I created a life around that and sort of an ecosystem around that and was as miserable as I'd ever been in my entire life. I was happier living in my car trying to figure out what the next day was going to be than I was with a nice house on the hill and um, a Mercedes Benz. And can I stop you there for one second? What did did misery feel and look like to you? I mean, so you got Um, what would have been like a dream house, probably a dream bedroom. It was nice. It was was a nice house. What's the feeling? I don't know who I am. Uh, I don't like this world that's around me. I'm working really hard to maintain this illusion. Of, um, I started to buy things, uh, things in my childhood, comic books, uh, toys, um, Star Wars collectibles. I've got a garage full of stuff that I probably haven't seen in years. And I just sort of was trying to figure out what pacifier I could find to make peace with myself. And I was doing all kinds of things, but none of those things made me happy. And I was desperately looking for it outside of myself and was in a relationship that wasn't working. Um, had a couple beautiful kids that I, to this day I love and sort of saved my life. And they but, are you. They, they are. All right. Um, but it was really, really, it was really di- difficult waking up every day, not really wanting to wake up every day. Yes. It was an odd place to be in because on one hand, you want to be grateful because you got the thing that you work for. On the other hand, the thing that you prayed for uh, hurts. And I remember... You feel like you deserved it? No, because I wasn't authentic. It wasn't really... Uh, and uh, this next part, we'll speak to it a little bit more. So uh, I ended up going through a divorce, and uh, it lasted from late 2010 through 2012. And shortly thereafter, I got sick. And during this period of time, I'm not working like I was working. So everything that I had built was sort of falling away because I'm paying for this divorce and I'm fighting a custody case and I'm going through a bunch of different things. And so I'm watching the illusion kind of fall apart, but I'm desperately trying to hold on to it. So I ended up getting sick. Um, I had liver failure, kidney failure, and a heart attack, like boom, 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 all three. And back to back to back to back. Wow. And so I'm in the hospital on and off for four to six months, um, pretty consistently. And for one of those stretches, I didn't know whether or not I was going to make it out. And I don't think the doctors knew whether or not I was going to make it out because I had a lot of stuff physically working against me and emotionally and psychologically too. And there's a gentleman by the name of Devon Franklin. Uh, He is a, I think I introduced him to you, Steve, uh, at one time. And he came one morning, I was about to go into surgery. 
and he just appeared. It was almost like Gazoo from the Flintstones. He just popped, looked up and popped. He was right there in this beautiful <laughs> red warm-up suit, beautiful red Nikes. Like everything was together because Devon is always together. And Devon Franklin is a pastor and an executive. I think he's a pastor and a producer now. And um, he prayed for me. And it was one of those prayers I told him he should have waited for the eulogy. It was one that's like, man, you couldn't close with this one. It was so beautiful. <laughs> and he said, um, I asked him, you know, and it was a moment of vulnerability, probably the first time I'd been completely honest in years. And I said, how did everything get so bad in my life? And he said, um, what makes you want to do this? What makes you want to write? And I said, you know, when I was a kid, I loved horror. I loved the Universal Monsters, the Hammer films, um, all of these things, comic books. I was that kid. I was sort of a blurred before there was a term for it, was a nerd or a geek at the time. And he said, so it was a heart thing. And I said, yeah, I loved it. I wanted to, I felt like it spoke to me in a different way than it spoke to my friends. And I wanted to give that to other people if I could find the stuff within me to do that. He said, so it's a hard thing. And I said, yeah. And he said, so what are you doing now? Are you working with your heart? And I said, no. He said, what are you doing? I said, I'm making money. He said, I think if you go back to working from your heart, I think you'll find your path. And he left me with that. And it stuck in my head that if I could just get out of here, I'm going to work from my heart, even though I have no idea what that means. And things slowly but surely started to turn when I got out of the hospital. And this is when Steve comes along. So I'm looking for someone to help me find this path. And so it was Steve and I was in and out of therapy because I couldn't afford therapy. And Steve was instrumental. Steve wasn't just a teacher. He was a friend as well. So there was a duality. And I loved you immediately, bro. There was something about you. I just said, Damn, I, we should have grown up together. We've been, been trading comic books. So there was a thing to where you were helping, but what I was trying to do more than anything else was I was trying to change my crowd. I was trying to change because as well, as well as I built a world around myself, I had people around me who I don't think served me in a way that I need to be served. Nothing disparaging against them at all. They were feeding the doppelganger that was sort of, representing who I was. And so again, nothing against them. It was all about me. And I needed people who were going to say to me the things that needed to be said. And in all honesty, I needed to up the game for the path that I needed to be on. And I had an intrinsic idea intuitively of what that path was, but I didn't know what it was practically. So there was a lot of anxiety of, okay, when are things going to get better? When are things going to get better? So during this period from a business place, I hadn't written any specs. Television wasn't doing black sitcoms in a way that they had been doing them before. I really struggled to find work. And that's when I started working on game shows. I started working on award shows. If you look at my IMDb, you see these sitcoms. Then you see all of like the Oscars and this, that, the different things that I had done. And that was sort of the bridge between getting back into the game. And so getting back into the game really consisted of, I went to a black uh, film conference, the BFF summit uh, that Warrington Hudlin had every year before COVID. And one year it was Alan Hughes of the Hughes brothers, Nelson George and Chris Rock. 
and Chris, who I knew from Everybody Hates Chris. So I hung with him the whole time. And we went to lunch. And the whole time I'm talking, Alan Hughes is just kind of sizing me up. And I'm like, almost like he wanted to fight me. I had no idea what he was looking at. And I get back to my hotel room and Nelson George said, Alan Hughes wants your phone number. Can I give it to him? Sure. And Alan had a drama that he wanted me. He was looking for a writer to rewrite. And he felt like it was something in what I was saying that led him to say that maybe I should give you a shot at being this guy. And so I jumped at the opportunity because I've always loved the Hughes brothers and Alan sort of had a vibe, kind of like you, Steve, kind of had a thing to where the filter, there wasn't much of a filter. He said to me exactly what I needed to hear and the way I needed to hear. And so I've been working on sitcoms and I had a sitcom mentality. In, sit, in the sitcom world, whether a script is good, bad, or someplace in between, you're going to make a show every week. So it's kind of like factory work. You're going to grind it out, grind it out, do it quickly, get it in, you get it out. Some better than others, of course, you've got classic television. But for us, it was like you're cranking this stuff out. And so Alan said, you know, get me an outline. I wrote an outline. And I'm not getting any money for this. So I write an outline. He's like, oh, my God, this is incredible. Go ahead and write the script. Oh, my God, this is, this is the turnaround that I'm looking for. So I took two and a half weeks, and I write this script. Put everything I got into it. Then I give it to Alan. And Alan says, man, this is incredible. This is a great start. I'm like, start? <laughs> this? I'm supposed to get some money. I'm supposed to. It, when did, I, I did all of this, and what happens? And I'm, like, mad. I'm frustrated. And he was patient with me enough to uh, understand that I didn't understand the difference between art and I won't say factory work purely, but there was a different process I needed to go through emotionally, psychologically, as it, as it sort of pertained to that thing of writing from my heart it takes a different energy and writing from my head. And I hadn't made the connection between those two. So I think it was however many drafts later. At, at this point, it's over a hundred drafts, but at that time it was in the thirties, I think, um, to get it to a place where he was willing to show it to HBO. And they didn't pick it up. But when I gave it to my agents, they were like, wow, we didn't know you could do this. And it sort of had a different effect. They saw, they saw me in a different light because they were pumping me as well to be the sitcom guy. You're going to be the sitcom guy. And I just, I'm looking for money, you know, back then. And now with Alan, I'm looking at something else. And so I got another opportunity with Alan. I did another script and... That one turned out to be the script that sort of turned my career around. Um, it was about these kids. It was a, another, it was a retelling of Lord of the Flies, but with these four black kids in Long Beach. It was uh, loosely based on Snoop Dogg's life. And again, it got set up twice, never made it, but I made a good amount of money off of it. And it sort of opened the eyes to a lot of folks that I could do something else. And the Scorsese folks and Max got a hold of it for a bottom. And I'm still eating off that script to this day. But having specs in my library sort of changed everything. It made my agents and managers look at me differently. Um, it made me look at me differently. Um, it just turned everything around. And so I started to get drama work. And that's where... Um, Marvel's Runaways and American Gods and all of these other things came about. And um, so there you go. It's so interesting that it was 
the specs and getting in the heart place that was such a turnaround for you. Because I think in some ways, Steve and I had a similar experience, you know, our screenwriting was almost limited to when producers approached us mm-hmm. and wanted to adapt something. And we were only sort of writing when we were paid or when we were asked and we weren't writing enough spec scripts. And, 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 and it, it finally, the lifeblood. it took a disappointment for us to realize, why are we waiting for other people? Let's just write what we want to write. And we wrote our strongest scripts out of that. And like you say, those samples, they may not get produced. But those samples keep keep income coming in, keep meetings coming in, get you hired. So thank you for sharing that. I think that's I would like really Riley to speak a little bit. You said that spec scripts are your lifeblood. Yeah. It, the process of getting yeah. to know yourself, the process of of improving your craft. Would you please yeah. speak a little bit more on that? I think that's good. Yeah. Well, two things. One, those spec scripts I still write, I still improve because I think I've improved as a writer from when I first wrote them. So I continuously update them again and again and again. So when people, they don't ask as much for spec scripts, but every once in a while they still do. Um, And so I try to make them the best representation of what they can be. Um, There's that, but there's so much BS in Hollywood. Um, Everybody believes they're great at what they can do. And these companies you know, people's livelihoods are dependent upon picking the right people to do the right job. And they can't go into it because you're a nice person or because you've got a great story or because you went to Yale or Harvard or whatever. You have to be able to show that you got the goods. And even then, it's always a proving thing with Hollywood. So this one gig, um, not long ago that this company wanted me to do, they wanted three or four specs. They wanted features. They wanted everything. And fortunately, I had it. Ten years ago, I wouldn't have had it. I would have only had sitcoms that were produced. And when you're in a writer's room, no one knows who wrote what. So it's difficult for them to give you credit for having worked on a show. You really only get credit for specs. Even after all these years, I've been writing on TV shows for 20 plus years. And no one cares that if I give them a winning time script or a Everybody Hates Chris or Boondocks. They're looking at your specs to say, okay, we know what that thing is. What's your voice? And I think Hollywood buys voices more than they actually buy writers. The way Hollywood changes is with tone. It was funny in Winning Time just last night, Chick Hearn, the Chick Hearn character played by Spencer Garrett, um, had a couple of comments. He made a comment about Pat Riley when he came in that his voice was effeminate. Yes. He used a different word. Yeah. And he mentioned the gorilla at the door, which was actually me at the time as well. And so I noticed that. Yes. <laughs> and so a couple of people complained on Twitter and a couple of people complained past Twitter about that. And, you know, we had to argue that this was, this is what 1979 was. It's like, if you look at what comedians were saying, what was sort of in the zeitgeist of, you know, Western culture at that time. It wasn't what it is today. And to eliminate uh, all of that to sort of appease today's sensibilities sort of does a disservice to the reality of the moment. We could go hard, really, if you want to. I grew up with all of that stuff. I grew up with worse. I grew up saying worse because that's what I heard when I was coming up as a young person. And so, you know, you're sort of in a place to where television and film morph and shift to the times. And you have to prove, especially as an older writer as well, that you can adapt to those times in a way that people can, you can write a project that can make money. And so it's always about evolving. It's always about staying ahead of the game. 
I think self-awareness is imperative. Your ability to look at yourself and see where you need to improve. Your circle needs to continuously improve. There's always a progressive component to it that I think in a weird kind of way keeps you young because whether or not people like the idea of it, it's a competition. Yes. We're all competing because there are only but so many gigs and that so many has expanded because the 600, if we're talking about television, it's five, 600 channels right now. So there's more work right now than ever, but you're still fighting for eyes. You know, those networks and those streaming services are doing, they want the people who can write the things that can get people to come and tune in. And that's no easy feat. It is style of writing. It's voice. It's a myriad of different um, things. So it's a great time, but it's a great time only if you're prepared for it to be a great time. You've mentioned several things that I only want to call attention to rather than having to ask you, thank God. It was just, you know, if I would just look at that, you've talked about therapy. Mm-hmm. You've talked about coaching, which is my, my relationship to you. You've talked about changing your circle of friends, yeah. support the person you need to be in order to have a healthy relationship with your career. And also, I would think a circle of mentors. You have you found people who believed in you who were at the level you wanted to be. And apparently you listened, you solicited and listened to their advice. Oh, you're unfortunately, you're one of them. I, I think anytime it's more of finding your tribe and there are always elders in the tribe and people who can speak to you in a language that can help you do the thing that you want to do. I think whether it's in a negative realm or positive realm, you know, you can create a world around you to support negative things or positive things. And in this realm, as far as writing is concerned, for me, I, I remember being in circles to where people would criticize my work or even outright say, you can't write. And because I have this imposter syndrome and I have massive insecurity and anxiety and depression and a bunch of other things, any negative stuff immediately sort of like is like a leech and it attaches itself and you start wondering whether or not it's true. And then I would find other people who would say positive things and be like, well, who do I listen to? Which one? Yeah. One, so one's got to be right. And they would be far swings of the pendulum. Like some people would say like words like brilliant and genius. And some people would say, yeah, nothing. And so I had to sort of figure out which side I wanted to be on because there's a part of insecurity that attaches itself to negativity. And I want to prove myself to these people over here that I'm not what you say I am because secretly I'm trying to prove to myself that what they're saying isn't true. And I spent a lot of time in that place of trying to prove myself. And then I come over to this side and I'm getting, you know, legendary world-renowned producers and folk saying these positive things. And I realized that not only were they saying them, but I was actually doing the thing. It was an aspect of it was true. And my therapist would probably say all of it is true, but that just tells you I'm not quite there yet. But, you know, I found uh, people who really could, who understood my voice, that appreciated my voice, that helped me support my voice and encouraged me to continue on. And I found that the closer I was emotionally to the material, the more I could connect in a way that felt authentic and real, the more confident I became. How do you and, make that connection with the material? What process do you go through to, be, to try to become more authentic? It's really simple. You become someone who's honest. 
And the more honest you can be with yourself, the more honest you can be with the material. And in the beginning, I used to try to write things that were like the things that I was working on. So if I had any specs, they were like my wife and kids, or they were like the boondocks, or they were like everybody hates Chris, because I'm thinking that's what people would like, and they would buy those things and continuously get me money. And my heart wasn't there. And, you know, people would ask me all the time, why don't you write more comedy? Why don't you, you know, do more of this stuff? That's what you're making money at. And my agents would push me in that direction. And I'm thinking, you know, I got a family. I like living the way that I'm living. I should just do that. But inside, you know, that you speak of from time to time, that nine-year-old wants to watch Hammer films and is reading Carrie or Different Seasons or whatever, My Soul to Keep or whatever, and wants to be over there. And the only thing that's stopping him from being over there is deep down, he's sort of afraid that he can't do it. And he's not really speaking to any level of authenticity. And when I thought I was going to die, you know, part of that prayer or that hope was that if I ever get out of here, I'm going to do it because now it's a, it's a weird thing, especially when you're a big guy. And at one time in my life, I was an athlete, not a very good one, but I was an athlete nonetheless. And I always felt, I knew I was going to die, but it wasn't coming anytime soon. Like I got this time and I'm going to live at least to the way technology and everything's working. I'm going to be in my eighties and nineties and I'm good. And there was nothing to persuade me otherwise. And then when I was faced with mortality and I realized that, you know, kind of like the Stoics, memento mori, remember that you have to die was right in front of my face now. And I know that I don't have as much time as I thought I was going to have. So if I get out of here, I'm going to try to, you know, sort of incorporate that Devon Franklin thing and operate from my heart. And I'm going to write the kind of stuff that I want to write. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. If I fail, I fail. I'll never be Stephen King, never be you. I'll never be you guys. I'll be whatever I'm going to be, but I'm going to give it the best shot I possibly could. And so... When I started to write, and Max Bornstein, who's our showrunner on um, on a Winning Time, where I was talking about meeting him, he also encouraged and pushed in a different kind of way than Alan did. It was more of a practical push now because Alan's a director, Max is a writer. And so we had a conversation one day when we were writing Arc of Justice. That's the uh, movie, the screenplay that got on the blacklist. And he called me, and I was working on like the Hip Hop Awards. I was taking everything that came my way. And he said, you know, you treat me sometimes like I'm your boss and we're really partners. And he said it in a way that sort of spoke to, I, I'm not coming in to sit in one of those chairs and just do a job. I want the, all of you and all of me is going to be all of you. And we're going to put all of us together. We're going to make a thing. And the more you find people like that, the more emotionally connected you become, and the more passionate you become, that's going to reflect in the work. It's not just about sitting in a chair in a writer's room and hopefully get three, four good jokes off during the day. Sort of urge a check. Here, it's every moment of every day, you're constantly thinking about ways to make a project better. And that's sort of how Winning Time at its best, season one, two in the morning, I might have an idea and I send him a text. You know, four in the morning, he may respond and we get on the phone and we're talking for four or five hours about race and culture and the game and the business of basketball and, you know, what it felt like when I was alive in 1979, what was the world like 
talking about relationships, you know, I relate to Dr. Buss in a lot of ways as well, and not just the Black characters. Um, I had problematic relationships with my mother and father and, you know, just different aspects of life. But we're talking about, it's a weird walk between life and the work. And the closer you can get those two together, you know, I get this feeling, again, having read so many of Stephen King's books, that he's talking about family. He's talking about alcoholism. He's talking about his fears and death and stuff. And the books, I realized now, even as a child, that those stories resonated with me so deeply because they resonated so deeply within him when he was doing them. That passion was coming out of him and into me via the story. And so... The more I can write from that place and do that with comic books and everything, it requires finding something good about myself to hold on to and love. It requires passion, which means in my interpersonal life, the nature of my relationships have to improve and be really, really meaningful. Once you start putting the pieces of the puzzle together, and I wish 20 years ago this had come so I would have more time on the clock, hopefully, it starts to make the work meaningful and cathartic in all of the things that you would hope writing would be. So it's a beautiful thing when it all comes together. Rodney, I I love the way you articulate your experiences. I know there are times in the past we've just called you for quick advice and you took us to church, you know, (laughs) where we were on the path. And it's so funny you talk about that relationship between life and the work, because Mm -hmm. that's actually what this podcast, Life Writing, Write for Your Life, literally is all about. So I have like just two final quick questions that I think are related. Number one, for people who are just starting out, they haven't even sold that first script. They're just aspiring screenwriters. What element, maybe you've talked about it, but what do you think is the most important thing for them to remember as they're- Maybe they haven't even written that first script, but they're trying to get in. What would you say? And and then secondly, uh, and think about this, maybe while you're answering Mm -hmm. the first part, is what are your most important steps towards self-care? Is there a daily ritual or a weekly ritual that helps keep you anchored in your most balanced place? The first one is easier to answer. The first one I always say, again, as Devon Franklin said, right from your heart, what does that mean? It's like there's something that drives you to writing. Like, what is that thing? Whether it's a genre, but if, the more you can make it personal. I write a graphic novel called Philadelphia, and... The primary storyline, the A story, is between a father and uh, son who are estranged, and the son has to come back and help the father who is now a vampire. And a lot of that story had to do with um, the difficult nature of the relationship between my father and I and my son and I. And, you know, I always wondered if my father was still alive, whether or not more time would be the thing. Like, could we heal all our issues if it was more time? And vampires are immortal. So that's where the vampire part came in. And every issue of the book, I try to find something honest about myself to sort of put in there, something I haven't either come to terms with or something that I'm wrestling with or something that matters to me. And a lot of times people come back to me and those are the things that they connect with. And it has to be honest. It has to be real. So all of that to say, if you can find something in your life that is honest and real and you can attach it to this idea, you can marry those two things together. It'll make you want to write more because narcissistically, I think people want to, to write about themselves and about the things that, and I mean that in a good way, people are focused mostly on themselves. And I think that if you could do that, hopefully people will feel 
that connection between you and the material and it'll drive you to continuously work on the thing and not abandon it. Because if you're just doing it as a device, like, okay, they're doing superhero movies now, I'm going to write a superhero movie. At a certain point, if there's no passion underneath of it, you're going to abandon. You're going to, or even if you do it, it's going to reflect that you're doing it for that reason. And I can say that because I've done that thing. It almost killed you, didn't it? Yeah, it did. But even in the times when I was doing it out of desperation, because it wasn't like once I got out of the hospital and I got on this path, everything was like, great. I was still in a desperate place. And even now go back and forth and my agents and managers, they're like, you know, you can't say yes to everything. Mm. Being able to say no to certain things is very, very important. And I'm still learning that one because I'm still in a place of, it's such an honor. And I'm amazed that somebody's willing to give me money to do this. You know, I've always been a physical guy and being black and being seen as a large black man, because I am a large black man. I've always been sort of stuck with my physicality and the fact that I live off of my mind was something that I always wanted in the back of my mind. I wanted to be, I wanted to use this instrument, not just so much my physicality to the second part. My routine, I'm still working on that. I have never, ever, 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 ever given myself self-care. And whenever I talk to Steve, Steve will always say, are you taking care of yourself? And I'm like, all right, I really respect Steve. And so I want to give him an honest answer, but I don't just finish this McDonald's uh, a little, like right before he drove up. So I want to be honest about this thing. And I, and I noticed... I noticed some sleep interruption there too. With yeah, that, yeah, yeah. All the AM phone call. Yeah, all of that. All you, of know, that. you know, Rodney, you know, I, I don't expect you to come back with some perfect answer. What I expect is that you, you represent a thing to me. And because yes. you represent the nature of how we came together and the nature of what you are. And you are a little older than me. And I've always sort of collected father figures anyway. Yes. So I never want to disappoint the parent, the few parents that I've had that have come through osmosis. So when you do ask me that question, I want to give you an answer that I would give a real parent. And I appreciate that. And I, I, I accept that. And I'm honored by that. But what I wanted you to know is I have never been disappointed by your answer. Appreciate I consider that my position is to be a part of a, a polarity, yes. to be a position that I'm the one I've got this thread called our friendship and, and our love for each other. And I'm, anytime you talk to me, I'm going to pull you, I'm going to tug you a little bit in this no. direction. And it's okay. It's totally okay. I love it that you're honest with me about it. And I will always be in your ear about that because I think you're one of the worthwhile people that I know. I think you're somebody who has a lot to say and a lot to contribute. And I find you, frankly, an inspiration. We kind of, yeah. we kind of look up to each other, Roger. Yes. Well, and thank you for that. And. You know, I think the, the thing is, and where I was going with that was I have never taken care of myself ever over the course of my life. I've never valued, I think I've been in survival mode emotionally for as long as I could remember. And when you're in that mode, you're not necessarily thinking about your physical body. You're not thinking about the vessel that got you here. You're thinking about how you feel and you're trying to protect yourself emotionally uh, because you don't feel protected right? intrinsically. It's not a natural part of who you are. And so it's a struggle. There, there are weeks that are great. I was on keto for like seven weeks and everything was fantastic. You couldn't have told me I wasn't going to win the LA marathon next year. And then I had one bad night and about a week and a half ago, and I fell off the wagon and now I'm under the wagon and I can see the wheels. 
and they, they, they taste like carbohydrates. And uh, <laughs> it was that quick and up all the way back. And so it's like, you know, this constant thing, but I'm blessed to have people in my life, to have a great therapist, to have people around me who, like you just said, the people who care about you tell you the truth. Now, whether or not you want to hear it is another thing. And, you know, I still wrestle with a myriad of things. My past has a tendency to pop back up from time to time in very inconvenient ways, but it's necessary. And I think in some ways a reminder that you're never there. You know, the Stephen Pressfield has a great book called The War of Art, and where he talks about resistance and he talks about staying on the path. And there is no, there's not like this destination fulfillment. Like you get to a place and everything's perfect. There's always going to be that stuff along the way that reminds you that life isn't perfect and probably isn't meant to be. Uh, wow. You know, see, like, it was actually during this, this podcast, this is our 12th episode that I realized that I, I want to have guests who talk like Rodney, where I'm listening to them. And I'm learning myself. It's like, yeah, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that. It's just like, I realize, oh my God, we can use our podcast to meet people who have advice <laughs> for us. Yes. <laughs> Rodney is always spinning that fire. Rodney. Yes. And helping other people coming up behind him. Just a beautiful spirit. I yep. could not be happier for you and where you are. I don't care about the McDonald's. Although we do a cheat day. We do yes, a cheat well, day. Which I have cheat weeks. My last cheat day was like two and a half days. So I'm not perfect. <laughs> it was an hour and a half. Like, <laughs> on, to finish off everything during the but, week. But oh, God. We love you as you are. We are so glad I that you're you. still here with us. Yeah. And we will we will talk. I'll send something to your uh, person about uh, getting together for dinner. Yeah, oh, we got yeah. to see each other in person now. You got to do that. Please, you got to come to the table. Gotta Absolutely got to come to the table. Yes. Thank you, you know? so much for the being on the podcast. Because so much of what you were saying just naturally fits into what we teach in our, our life writing program, which we've turned into a subscription course a year long called Life Writing Premium. You can find it at lifewritingpremium.com. It's for all kinds of writers. Whether you yeah, we, have poems, a, we have a beautiful quote about oh, yeah. Keanu Reeves teaching from a former student says, quote, of all the creative writing workshops I've attended, Tanana Reeves screenwriting workshop remains one of my favorites. I will never forget her specific praise and the countless opportunities for growth. And that was from B. Sharice Moore, author of Afrofuturism textbook, Conjuring Worlds, who just got a two-book contract from HarperCollins, and you could be next. Right. So, over at LifeWritingPremium.com. And Rodney, I love you, man. I mean, I, I do. I am grateful that you're in the world. I'm glad. You know, you're taking better care of yourself. You have some way of things. You look fantastic. Thank you yeah. very much. I'm, I'm working on it. It's a work in progress. And eventually, by the time I leave this earth, it's going to be great. So <laughs> okay, well, there you go. Well, how about it's great right now? It's great right now. Perfection is a verb, not a noun. Exactly. You know, we're, you're on the path, buddy. Thank you so much for being with us. Hey, thank you for being on the podcast. For listening and uh, closing it up, just, you know, be the hero or heroine. In the adventure of your lifetime. Take care and we'll see you next week. Bye bye, everybody. You've been listening to the Life Writing Podcast. Join us next time for more conversations about creating the project of your dreams. 
For more information, go to lifewritingpremium.com and get ready to write for your life. My name is Jenny Owen-Youngs. And I am Kristen Russo. And together, we run Buffering, a rewatch adventure, a family of podcasts moving through our favorite 90s genre television. If you're a fan of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, well, great news for you. Our very first podcast adventure took us through all seven seasons of the series. We covered it spoiler-free, episode by episode. For those of you who want to start the show for the first time, you can find that podcast pretty easily. It's called Buffering the Vampire Slayer. Inside that podcast, you'll also find an original song that pairs with each glorious episode of Buffy and original character jingles for so many of our Buffy favorites. Buffering has been praised in places like Time, Esquire, Paste Magazine, and the New York Times, and we've chatted with dozens of cast members, writers, directors, and fans along the way. Come hang out and rewatch some of your favorite television with us and a wonderful community of listeners. Learn more at BufferingCast.com or find us on socials at BufferingCast.